The Guardian. Baroness Saida Varsi is a singular presence in modern politics, certainly as far as the Conservative Party is concerned. Female, British Asian and from a working class background, at 38 she became the first Muslim woman to serve in a British cabinet. She's certainly not afraid to spark controversy. When she's talked about radical Islam, multiculturalism and the Tory right, she sparked a furious reaction, not just from the press, but from some of her Tory colleagues. She certainly caused her own party's press office more than a few tense moments. She was handpicked by David Cameron and recommended for a peerage, and in 2010 she was given the role of co-chairman of the Conservative Party. She definitely symbolises what the Prime Minister would like to present as the modernised Conservative Party. But have the Tories really changed? And if so, how? Here's the question. Do you think the Conservative Party, David Cameron's lot, have changed in any important way in the last ten years? I don't think they've changed for the last few thousand years they've been around, to be honest. Although they project an image of having changed a lot, I think their ideology is exactly the same. So that their ideas about privatising the NHS, about redistribution of wealth, about the welfare state, those things are exactly the same. I still think they're exactly the same party they were ten years ago. Which is? They're still elitist for the privileged and they're not particularly fair in anything that they do. Do you think the Conservative Party has significantly changed in the last ten years? Yes. It's become wetter, you might say. Really? Yes, Do you I'd think it's changed for the worse? No, no, for the better. OK. Well, I think, yeah, they're making it easier on them, making it harder for us to, to get jobs and all them... You haven't got a job at the moment, right? No. OK. I mean, do you think anyone in government understands that? About they people un- your they, age? That they, they just don't understand, like, they don't ask us what we feel about it. Well, I think they've just learned a lot about how to present themselves to the voting public. I suppose kind of tapping into what's on voters' minds at the moment. Are you convinced? Yeah, I think I am, yeah. That they're yeah. a modernised yeah, I think, I think, party I think relative so, yeah. to where they were 10 or 15 yeah, I, years I think Yeah, I think there is still in the back of my mind, you know, what's PR and what's real change. No. Explain. I just don't think they have. I think they're fundamentally still a privileged elite that haven't got anything in common with... Average person on the street. Even though there's like a there's a British Muslim female cabinet minister now. No. Black Tory MPs. No. Saeed Avasi, compared to where it was 15 or 20 years ago, how much has the Conservative Party changed? I think it's changed a huge amount. I mean, could we have imagined 15, 20 years ago that the co-chairman of the Conservative Party would be a Pakistani daughter of immigrants, mill workers from Yorkshire of the Muslim faith. We, we couldn't have... That's not the kind of picture you would have painted of the Conservative Party. And I think the fact that I am, it is, means we have. What does that denote politically, though? Because I could I think, make the argument that the Conservative Party retains its passionate faith in free market economics, you know. Certainly its record in government so far suggests that things are much where they were post-Thatcher. So how do you respond to the accusation that that's true and that your position might represent something, but maybe it only represents window dressing? No, but it, the principles of the Conservative Party, you know, the values of the Conservative Party are values that run through each generation of the Conservative Party. But I think what you do is you interpret those values for the times that you find. And I think the whole concept of compassionate conservatism is what I think today's Conservative Party is about. When we were talking to members of the public prior to coming to see you, prior to coming to see you, 
And we quite carefully chose where we did this. We did it close to the city of London. So we weren't mm. in a sort of archetypal lefty ghetto, mm. so to speak. And a lot of people we spoke to said that they felt the Conservative Party still represented the social elite. Mm. And it was sort of self-serving in that respect. Mm. And it didn't really understand how ordinary people live. That was something we heard a lot. Mm. So that impression is still there. And uh, of course, you know, it's it's a, a journey that we're going to have to be on to get rid of that that impression that people have altogether. If you went back to 2005, before David... Uh, became leader of the party, if you ever showed people policies, they said, oh, we really like those policies. And then when you said to them, well, actually, the Conservative Party policies, they said, well, I'm not sure I like them anymore. So there was a real issue in relation to what people thought the Conservative Party stood for. There was a gap between what they thought the party stood for, what it actually stood for. I think what's happened under David Cameron uh, and over the last four or five years is that the, the gap between what we stand for and what people think we stand for is now much, much narrower. But of course, it's still there. I mean, one of the biggest issues that the Conservative Party uh, has at the moment is that we, despite having the same values as many, many of our black and minority ethnic communities, we still don't have those communities voting for us in any large numbers. And Which maybe reflects what I've just said, that they yeah. perceive the Conservative Party as being well, exactly. a sort of so that's largely this- white... Southern English elite. And, and, and that's what I'm saying. It's that it's a journey. If you go back to 2005 to where we are now, there are people who in 2005 wouldn't have been able to make that move where they, even though they agreed with our values, but they couldn't agree with the brand. It's now, you know, we're, we're now on, at that stage where we picked up a lot of people who hadn't voted for the Conservative Party last time in 2005, but did vote for us in 2010. And the aim is to make sure that in 2015, even more people vote for us. And the way to do that is to make sure we go out and we engage we make sure that the way in which we present ourselves because it's not it's not what we're doing and it's not what we represent in terms of our policies and our values i think it's more to do with the way in which we sometimes have presented in the past if your presence at the top of the party if the fact that there are black and minority ethnic conservative mps and candidates and councillors in greater numbers than there were 15 or 20 years ago does represent something more than window dressing Give me a flavour of the sort of shift in thinking or policy that you that, that people like you, your your presence at, in conservative circles, has actually sort of pushed to happen. What's changed? Uh- I can only go from my own experience. And look, I wasn't deeply involved in the party 20 years ago. I mean, 20 years ago, I was kind of still at university. So I can only go from my experience of what I thought the Conservative Party was at that stage. Right, but as the Conservative Party itself, as a result of uh, taking in Mm -hmm. a more diverse collection of people than were in it 15 or 20 years ago, has that changed the Conservative Party politically? Or is it the fact that the Conservative Party is much where it ever was and it just happens to have a slightly more diverse public face? Then? No, I think it is much more informed than it was 20 years About ago. About what kind of thing? Informed in terms of what, what, who the communities are, what the nuances of those communities... I mean, I'll, give you, I'll give you a typical example. What the Conservative Party would have done 15 years ago is suddenly thought, oh, we need to do something with black minority ethnic communities. So we would have got lots of black and brown people, thrown them into a room, and that would have been our diversity event. The fact that loads of people in that room probably didn't have anything in common with each other you know, I always say, you know, we would have got lots of people who were Asian looking, thrown them into a room without actually working out that two lot of them fell out in 45 and then the other lot fell out in 71. And really, they might have more against each other than they had in common with each okay. other. But what I think we as a party... So it understands, understand who, it understands is, who British Asians are far no, better than it did before. I think it, it, is much more, it has a much more um, nuanced and 
kind of uh, granular view of, of what makes up Britain. Well, what does that but what does that mean therefore that the Conservative Party's mindset about immigration has changed? Well, I think or the Conservative Party uh, attitude about interfaith relations has changed. You know what's changed? Well, let me tell you about immigration. Immigration in the past used to be talked about almost in racial tones whenever there was the debate. And to be fair, it wasn't just within the Conservative Party; it was within the Labour Party as well. One of the things that uh, David did was that he deracialized the immigration campaign. He talked about it in terms of resourcing. And, you know, as the daughter of an immigrant, that's exactly the way I view it. You know, each generation has to look at what its needs are right now and make policy decisions in accordance with that. And I think that's the difference when I say that it's much more nuanced in its understanding of today's Britain. You know, it's, it's a party that I'm comfortable with. It's a party that people like me are comfortable with. But it's a party which I think more people like me need to be comfortable with. To win an overall majority, we've got to win more women. We've got to win more people of black and minority ethnic background voting for us. We've got to win over people who would consider voting Liberal Democrats. So, you know, we have to, of course, keep going down that journey. Is that difficult right now because uh, when you talk about black and minority ethnic inner city communities that you've talked about quite recently, uh, they're concentrated in more vulnerable socioeconomic groups and it's in the nature of austerity and what the government's doing that those people are going to be disproportionately affected. So in other words, as much as you seem to be in charge of this drive to pull them towards the Conservative Party, the policy direction where the government's at sort of is in the worst possible place to achieve that right now. I mean, do you feel that tension? I don't agree with that. I don't agree with that at all, because if you actually go and speak to some of these communities which are feeling the the harshness of the current economic climate, the one thing that you will hear from them is that people who go out and work hard should be rewarded, and people who don't actually work hard and actually play the system shouldn't get something for nothing. It's in those communities where they are at the coalface of it, where they feel it most acutely, where somebody feels they get up, get to work at six, seven o'clock in the morning, the neighbours sitting on the backside not working, but seems to be able to have exactly the same lifestyle what if they say, as they um, have. What if they and also say, but these people like the bankers at the top who should be taking far more of the burden and you don't seem to be doing much about them? I mean, well, that, I, that idea about yeah. hardworking people feeling the pain, mm. I accept and they express it very often in terms of... Uh, people cheating the welfare system perhaps mm. whether rightly or wrongly but there's an additional issue about people at the top as well yeah, uh, and maybe I, the government isn't isn't focusing enough on them you must hear that as I, well i think the government's focusing on both i mean all our welfare reform that we're doing in uh, in government is all about making sure that it pays to work and those people that you know uh, use the system abuse the system aren't allowed to do that but we've also been very very clear about the fact that the bankers have to play their role i mean have if you, you look what, at the ways, floating drop in the 50p rate of tax for example no come on you know the, the diff- discussions that i had on the margins about what certain people in our party would like, the like to do oh come on he said very clearly even the you know even alistair darling said this was a temporary measure this wasn't something that they were going to keep him forever you know we don't nobody wants to live in a uh, in a society where we stifle entrepreneurship but this is not a priority for us right now we we are facing the current difficult circumstances that we're in and in those difficult circumstances we've got to make sure that those that can pay and have the broadest shoulders do bear the So the conservative sell, in times as hard as these, when we know (laughs) that people in communities like Dewsbury are feeling the pinch acutely, Mm -hmm. and not just because of economic circumstances, also because of the government's cuts programme, which you will argue is necessary, okay, let's take that as red for the sake of the argument. What's the conservative sell to someone 
from a background like yours, who perhaps hasn't done as well as you in a, in a community like Dewsbury, how do you sell austerity to them? Well, the three biggest sells that I would have for people in Dewsbury is one to say, you don't want to live in a country. I don't want to live in a country where, as we had in the last decade, for every 10 jobs that were created in the south, one was created in the north. That isn't acceptable. And what you've got under this government is a rebalancing so that we're not relying upon a, a housing boom and the city of London to actually you know, run our economy. That is going to be rebalanced and therefore our support with the Regional Growth Fund, by the Legal Enterprise Partnerships, by everything that we're dry, trying to do to create regional drivers of growth has got to be a positive thing. So that's the first sell. The second sell I think I would have is that every child deserves to have a damn good education. That it can't be right that if you can afford it and you can send your kids to an independent school, that's the only way your kids are going to get on. So whether it's academy schools, whether it's free schools, so that's the second sell that I'd have to them. And the third sell I would say to them is, look, the way in which this country has lost its way, this kind of something for nothing culture, if you can get away with it, so what? Doesn't matter, you know, fill your boots, whatever. You know, use Ed Miliband's words. Those were his great words. And, you sound very like you know, Ed Miliband's words. Well, you know words, what? My question to him was, I agree with everything you said, but where the hell have you been for the last 15 years? You know, I mean, what has he just arrived as a Martian and suddenly thought, oh, I don't like this country that I've found. But the third argument is... We're going to change the way in which the values that form the basis of this country are seen. So if you go out and work hard, you will be supported. If you break the law, then there will be consequences. The concept of fairness is something which will be at the heart of what we do. So whether it's welfare reforms, whether it's you know our policy on immigration, all of that is all going to be focused around making sure that those who, who play by the rules yeah. will actually be supported. But there are very credible figures. I mean, the IFS, a body with which you and I wouldn't argue on any political basis, has pointed out that the CUTS programme disproportionately affects people at the bottom of society. In other words, it's regressive, right? It's bound to be, if you think about who relies on the things that are being cut back. How do you sustain an argument for fairness against that sort of backdrop? I don't think anybody is arguing that these are not difficult times. I don't think I'm arguing that, you know, those who are facing these difficult times, you know, whatever income structure they're on. I mean, even people on middle income are saying, you know, we shouldn't have to lose our child benefit because we're going to be impacted. People who are working are saying we shouldn't be impacted because, you know, we're going to have problems in relation to childcare. You know, these are difficult times. But... I think everybody in the country, whether they agree or disagree with what we're doing, accepts that something has to be done. Tell me about growing up in Dewsbury in the 70s and 80s, when Britain wasn't as open and as... I mean, I don't like the word tolerant, personally. I think you've got yeah. to aim at being an accepting society, yeah. right? Britain wasn't like that then. Yeah. What are your memories of Dewsbury in that sort of context, from when you were quite young, you know, going back to the maybe the mid to late 70s? Yeah. I'm amazed at how resilient kids actually are. And you go back to some of the experiences that I had at school and you kind of just got on with it. I mean, I was talking the other day about uh, there used to be major kind of fights at the end of term where certain schools would team up and meet you outside the gates and you knew you were going to get a bit of a kicking and you know the whole concept of excuse the language where it was called packy bashing you know it did go on and you recall and, I mean you and, recall quite and, clearly that being talked about but yeah. also that being something to worry about something you knew that there were certain times at school at certain times of the year when you know I used to make sure that mum picked us up and picked us up from the top of the school and picked us up early but kids are 
kind of oddly, you know, I kind of don't look back at my childhood and think, oh, that scarred me. You know, this is why when we were talking about the riots and there was this huge discussion about, well, it's caused these racial tensions or people feel excluded. And, you know, everything they were saying was everything that at some time in my life I had felt. But at no point on that trajectory did I think, right, that now means I've got to kick in footlock and pinch some right. trainers. It, you know, it kind of made me think what I should do is no, get I my head down. I don't associate you with kicking in <laughs> trainer shops, but no, I do associate you perhaps with drive, right? Oh, and what with, it did do is yeah, that's what I, I needed to get you. my head down and work. And you wanted to get out, I would imagine. Is that right? I wanted to get on not get out there was a there's a big difference what i i never felt oh my god i hate this place and i've got to get out of here i actually thought i want to do really well and i want to change things so it wasn't my natural instinct to go get a job in the south it was my natural instinct to set up a legal practice on the high street in dewsbury your father went from being a bus driver i mean you know this to some extent is a thought a of conductor actually the thatcherite dream really if yeah. you forgive me using that expression a bus conductor to owning a, a bed manufacturing business mm. with an annual turnover correct me if i'm wrong of around two million pounds yeah we're going to speak to the tax man uh, that's for you to <laughs> so i'm sure your tax affairs are, are fully above board yeah, always have been <laughs> what were your father what were your father's politics and what are your father's politics you mentioned having a sort of Labour family yeah. before. My father voted Labour. My mum voted Conservative. She voted for Mrs T. And so it was an interesting uh, kind of background. My mum uh, comes from a fairly kind of formal, I would probably say middle class family where education was very important even in the Punjab in Pakistan. And my father comes from a very, very poor working class family. Right. And that was their kind of background. So we get our kind of work ethic hard work and you know you can do anything from my dad and we get our kind of more controlled well yes that's all good but you've got to go out and get yourself a decent qualification and get to university first and do it the right way from my mum. Your first marriage lasted 15 years it was an arranged marriage right when you look back at your experience of arranged marriage how do you feel I mean it's something that people talk about a lot mm. right it's entered politics now which it, mm. which it hadn't 15 or 20 years ago how do you feel about it looking back? I think that I mean, I can't, everybody has a personal experience and I can, you know, I don't want to talk about it from a personal experience because I think I would, had I married anybody at 19, I'm not sure whether, you know, 20 years on or 15 years on, you know, that that marriage would have survived. People change and I right. think, you know, I, I was a different person at 19, I was a different person at 29 and subsequently. But did you feel sort of pushed into it? When I say to you that it was an extremely interesting time as a child, you kind of just got on with it. You know, and maybe that was the kind of, you know, slightly dumb child that I was where I just kind of got on with it. Well, like, sure, go was, right, I'm going to get married yeah. to this person I hardly know. No, well, I think my, my pet, you know, it was these are the options that you have and this is the option that we'd prefer you to take. And you kind of went, well, all right, okay then. You just, I, I know it sounds like a crazy thing, and I tell you, if my kids did that now, only because I'm a, be so I guess because I'm a secular white yeah. British person, so the yeah, idea the of something of, like marriage being something you dutifully agree to, I suppose, yeah, but the concept is quite of, alien to my understanding. But the concept of family, the concept of whatever decisions that you make and their implications, the implications of those decisions on everybody around you, right. the concept of what your place in society is, was very, very different, and, pro and I presume it's probably still different within Asian communities you don't make decisions which are just right for you you don't just think this is this is the only thing that's good for me you actually do that is a much 
more broader approach to your decision making and your sense of obligation and responsibility towards your parents is is something that you know I felt very deeply right? is there any truth that what, what tilted you towards agreeing was that he looked like Sanjay from EastEnders he did actually look like Sanjay from EastEnders <laughs> and, and you know at 19 you, you know you kind of make these decisions based on probably all the wrong reasons okay um, moving on, you left Britain in the aftermath of September the 11th because you felt that uh, something strange and sort of unsettling had happened to the country in the wake of that and you felt you had to leave. What happened? I had spent most of my university life in my 20s and it was all about race. It was about watching Nelson Mandela being freed from Robben Island. I remember when he walked out, we all sat around the television and watched that. Um, it was, I remember Brixton, Toxteth, it was all about the colour of your skin and it, people always talked about black British people or Asian British people. September the 11th defined, redefined who I was. I wasn't just Asian and British, I was actually now Muslim and British. And I suppose the, the kind of view that I had was, I can't be bothered. You know, I've been here, we've had these battles, we've kind of got to the point where people who are black and British or Asian and British kind of feel comfortable and I can't be bothered. To start all over again. You felt it was a step this. back. I felt it was a step Britain back. Britain regressed. I think Britain redefined people's identities. And I didn't feel I needed, I wanted to be in a place where I had to constantly justify the actions of some nut jobs around the world who wanted to go around blowing up people. So you went to Pakistan. Yep. And did you go to Pakistan to sit it out? In other words, did you pick when you returned when you felt some of what you just talked about had started to subside? I wanted to get away. I wanted to go off and do something completely different. I sold my legal practice, which I think most people were horrified at, including my parents. Um, and I went overseas and, you know, literally kind of packed a bag and left and had the most amazing nine months, you know, learned so, learned language, learned culture, learned about a different part of the world where my parents originated from. and had the most amazing experience in rural Pakistan. Uh, but actually having been there for nine months, I just, I was really homesick. And I just felt that, you know, whatever the challenges were in Britain, there was nowhere else in the world where I would ever be able to settle. And where are we now as regards that post-September the 11th regression into quite clearly defined, often maligned sort of identity politics? I mean, that's still there, isn't it? We it still is. live in a world in which post-September the 11th, too many people think about... Muslim people and equate it with extremism and terrorism and all of that. I mean, all the things that you left because of are still around to some extent, aren't they? But when I was away, I actually realised that I'd done the wrong thing. That actually, if I was the person who I am, then I needed to be part of that. And and what it needed was, well, somebody people might have different opinions, but it needed some sane voices. And I hope I was, I considered myself to be a sane voice in that quite insane debate. And therefore, it's weird. So having a set of circumstances that had driven you away, the exact same set of circumstances nine months back. later pulled you back. Yeah. In a cabinet which is still full of white, mostly private educated men, to what extent do you feel like an outsider still? Every cabinet has always looked like that. I agree with that. For but you haven't been in every cabinet. Years. I'm asking you about yeah. this one. What does it feel like? Do you like feel like an me? outsider? What do you feel like? Oh, God, no. Um, I mean, a lot of the people around that table are people I've worked with for years. And I don't sit there and kind of think they went to a different school to what I did. And therefore, but not I, many I of them are from a place like Dewsbury, are they? I mean, quite apart from the question of, yeah, and that's why, of identity. And, and that's really. why I sit around that table. Because if everybody was exactly the same, then, you know, we'd, 
it'd be a very boring cabinet. Somebody said to me, what is the specific policy you've bought from Yorkshire or to Yorkshire? And I said, well, I would bring a bit of common sense around the table and say it as it is, really. Talking of which, some of your views on sort of socio-cultural, to sound very Guardian, and foreign policy <laughs> can you, issues... Can you, kind of, can you define that for me? Well, it what, means what do you mean? the social... The social Outside the economic, I suppose. So yeah. questions of faith and yeah. race and identity and so on, right? Some of your views on that stuff have been, are arguably, at variance with what one might think of as the Tory mainstream. I'll give you a few examples, right? You were opposed to the Iraq war. Yeah. The Tory party in Parliament en masse voted for it, with very few exceptions. Well, there's three of us in Cabinet that were against the Iraq war. Andrew Lansley, Kenneth Clark. You have said in the past that holding power might prove to be the making of Hamas in Palestine which again is not something I would say was an orthodox conservative party foreign policy position. Okay. You're nodding, so you obviously agree. <laughs> no, what I said was that power is a terribly calming feature sometimes right. and it can you make you stop flat, and think. You copped flack for saying that. I got copped flack all the time. Life would be boring oh, right, if another I one then. And you've, uh, you've, That's why I'm sitting here, right? <laughs> You're not the average politician. You've also urged dialogue in the past, recent past, with... The kind of people who other people, maybe in the Conservative Party, would characterise as being extremist Muslims, right? When do you ever change people's views by not talking to them? That's a point of view, but it's not the point of view that the Prime Minister takes. Yeah, but the Prime Minister, but the Prime Minister does believe that you challenge people's views. But he doesn't believe that one engages with groups that some might see as extremists. I mean, no, I in his speech about muscular liberalism, he took a very different position. Right? I don't, I don't think you engage with them. I, you don't sit around the table and have cups of tea and say, "Oh yes, well we have differences of opinions, but you know what, we're all friends." When I say you challenge groups, you stand. You do what I did when I got egged in Luton by some extremist groups where you turn around and you stand them stand firm and you say how dare you and you actually don't represent the views of the religion of islam or the values of the religion of islam and let me tell you why that's what i mean by challenge i don't mean tea parties no no but you've said that uh, in terms you said that uh, it would be a good idea for the political establishment in britain to be talking to uh, muslim young men who they see as being angry young men and i think you said the sort of people that some might think of as being nutters. Look, it's a scale, isn't it? And you, there are some people who will go want to go out there and commit murder and commit terrorist acts, and we saw that on the tubes on, on 7-7. Can you engage in a discussion with that? No, you can't. But there are other young people who we have to engage with. I mean, when I was at university, you know, was I radical? Yes, I was. You know, did I did I think I was black and I was part of some kind of civil rights movement? Yes, I did. did you, you know, yeah, you kind of thought that there was a big issue that radicalized you. You know, and you and you know, you kind of listened to black music and you kind of identified with that culture, even though I wasn't black. I was of Pakistani origin, but that was the kind of color defined you. Um, and I think that the best way to deal with issues around misunderstanding and, and people feeling angry is to actually go out there and engage and to put your views and to argue. That's true, but there are lots of your senior Conservative colleagues who believe that precisely some of the people who you would like to engage with, with a view to turning their points of view round, I agree with that, are beyond the pale and have to just be left alone in the service of what Mr Cameron calls muscular liberalism. I'm not, and this is, <laughs> I'm not looking for splits here. What I'm fascinated by is this denotes a debate and it denotes a debate at the highest levels of government and it's a debate in which you're actively involved. And that's yeah, it's true, isn't it? a debate we've it? been having for years. Right, okay. And it, and How and is it being in the midst of it? I, Sometimes you sound like a lonely voice. 
I'm not, I mean, first of all, I can say I'm not a lonely voice. There are lots of people around that cabinet on lots of different issues. And, you know, interestingly, in a coalition, it's even more intriguing because sometimes you find, you know, colleagues in different political parties on the same side on different things. It's a good thing that you and Michael Gove have radically different standpoints on well, what you we're know, talking about. Well, me and Michael Gove have some extremely fascinating conversations right. on these issues. Some of what we've talked about here, and the fact you take these policy positions, has made you unpopular with certain sections of the Tory right. I'm talking in terms of the sort of Tory media in particular. Every time I go, for example, on the Spectator's website, they're always calling for your head. They want you out, right? There are sections uh, of the Daily Mail, say, Melanie Phillips-type right-wing politics that probably feel similarly about you. How much do you... Do you think Melanie's a serious commentator? I'm saying nothing. I might meet her at a party sometime, but... What's from my facial expression say? <laughs> People like her, don't they? No, I don't think she's the, the most serious commentator we have, perhaps, but she has her audience. Nonetheless, those people are always calling for your head, right? I mean, to what extent do you feel that? You're always the cabinet minister they want rid of at the next reshuffle, you know? I know. I think I'm probably getting to the point where, um, other than Francis Maud, I'm probably going to end up becoming the longest-serving chairman that the party's had in recent history. So it's almost kind of a bit of a, a back-to-front question. Look... I I have the privilege of being really deeply engaged with the party. I spend two days a week touring. We do hundreds of constituencies. I'm out on the kind of stomp more than any of my colleagues. And my job, as far as the party is concerned, is to win elections and to win campaigns. That's what I am. I'm a campaigner. The conservative commentariat, which you're right about, which I call Westminster Village kind of discussions, I'm probably... I, I accept that I, it's probably my own failing. I'm not very good at nurturing them. Why? Because most of the time I can't be bothered. Because I think what's more important is getting out there and getting the job done, getting out there and speaking to the real people who are in your party and not going around publicising yourself and believing yourself publicity in Westminster. And if that means I don't wine and dine and schmooze and talk to myself and talk to people who live in a little bubble then I have to suffer the consequences of that, which means they write what they want about me rather than the publicity that I want to give them. Do you worry about losing your job whenever the reshuffle's going to happen? Oh, God, not at all. I'm a huge believer in fate. You know, it's a huge privilege to to serve your country, to be in the cabinet serving your country. You know, if that's for one year, well, so be it. If that's for 10 years, then so be it. I'm a huge believer in fate. And as long as I've got a job to do and I'm useful and the Prime Minister thinks I am, then I'll carry on doing it. Very, very high profile thing that happened to you recently was when you said that prejudice against Muslims, Islamophobia, had passed the dinner party test, the dinner table (laughs) test, which caused a huge stink, right? I take it you stand by what you said? Yes, of course I do. Um, You said that the standard cliche cliche (laughs) whereby Muslims are divided into extreme and moderate you thought was questionable, if not you know, mendacious, really. The problem that I see with making that point is, if I meet you, and let's say hypothetically in a room down the corridor, I'd go and meet the uh, absolute epitome of extremist Islamism, Anjem Chowdhury. Yeah. What other typology have, got, have I got? I mean, won't the obvious conclusion to draw is that there is, a, there is something broadly that denotes moderate Islam, and that's represented by, among other people, you, and there's something definitely 
which exists called extremist Islam, and Anjem Chowdhury seems to represent that. How can I avoid that typology that you think is mendacious and damaging and yeah, so on? I mean, I was speaking, uh, of course, you, would, you, you see this from a different perspective. And what I was saying was that from the Islam that I had been taught and that I had grown up with and that most people had grown up with, it has to be reasoned. It is, it is rational. It is connected it is um uh, it is contextualized now if you take away if you detach reason from religion then you're no longer part of that faith for me i have uh, if you if you are a follower of a faith which is so very clear in its uh, in its support for humanity and mankind yeah then you can't possibly do the acts and behave in the way that these people do i mean i've had uh, so with for example someone like anjem chowdhury who takes the positions that he does and it often sounds uh, as if he thinks uh, violence in the pursuit of his political stroke religious ends is justified and so on you think that's that in doing that they sort of forfeit the fact that they're Muslims. Well, if you they follow a religion and they follow a you know a prophet who, who brought a religion to 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 this earth, and yet nothing about the way they conduct themselves is in accordance with the teachings. Now, you know, I could I could stand up and I could say, you know what, I'm a, you know, I could give myself, you know, I could turn around and say, you know, I actually am Chinese. And you take one look at me and say, well, actually, you're not Chinese because you don't look Chinese and, you know, there's nothing about you which would, which would allow you to say that. But that doesn't stop me from saying it, does it? But it doesn't make me Chinese either. So once you believe in violence uh, in the cause of what these people would see as Islamic ends is justified... As far as you understand it, you're not a Muslim anymore. Well, you know, look, I, I, you have to be careful because it's not part, it's not for me to make that judgment. You know? Sounds like you're making yeah, it, though. Yeah, but in my in my view, right. I fundamentally believe that the minute they detach reason from their religion, they're not part of that faith anymore. What that means for you is not only are the right-wing commentariat <coughs> gunning for you, right, but these elements within uh, Islam, whether mm. rightly understood or not, are also gunning for you. So in other words, you end up shot, excuse my... Uh, phraseology here I'm just using the cliche you end up shot by both sides don't you I know but I think that puts me in a very good place that to me gives me the confidence to say I'm probably on the, in the right place Saeed Avasi thank you very much thank you <laughs>